Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, and I'm your host, Ambika Sharma. This is episode 44, and today's topic is payments APIs. Joining us for this conversation is the co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel, Kurt Lin. This conversation originally took place on Clubhouse, where we were joined by a live audience. So what you're listening to is a recorded session. In this episode, we discussed the founding story of Pinwheel, becoming a consumer reporting agency, use cases around income verification, direct deposit switching, paycheck-linked lending, and earned wage access. So without further ado, let's kick it off with a round of introductions. Again, my name is Ambika Sharma. I'm a product manager within the fintech space, in which I've been involved for about a decade, and I have worked in the US, Europe, and Latin America. I'll pass the baton next to my lovely co-host for her introduction. Thank you, Ambika. Monisha Chakrapani co-host with Ambika on this uh, Fintech Cafe show and Kurt, uh, Curtis, should, uh, actually, let me get that clarified. Do you, do you have a preference? Is it Kurt or Curtis? That's a great question. <laughs> I was going to say, Ambika, you shouldn't feel bad because there's there, there are two co-founders who are actually both named Curtis. And so it is incredibly confusing for everyone, including our own investors. Um, <laughs> so you, this, this happens all the time. But um, to keep things simple, I go by Kurt. Great. Okay. Kurt, it is. Welcome to our show. Just to kick it off, I think you started Pinwheel, like you mentioned, with two other co-founders. It's Curtis Lee with the C and Anish Basu. And interestingly, all three of you were previously not in the financial industry. So help us understand your professional journey and how you all ended up starting Pinwheel in a highly regulated space. Yeah, it's a great question. I will try to give you the abbreviated version so that way I don't you know, tell a whole odyssey of a saga here. But so there's three co-founders, myself, as mentioned, Curtis and uh, Anish. The other two, frankly, are much more impressive than I am. So I, I'll, I'll actually start with them and then weave myself back into the story here. But for Curtis and Anish, they started their careers uh, in tech in the early 2000s, Curtis as a PM and Anish as an engineer, both actually at, at Google. And then for those folks who have been around the block, you may recall that there was a Zynga game called Mafia Wars, which was one of the first big hits in the world of social gaming. And that Curtis and Anish were, they, they led product engineering respectively for that team. So that was kind of their first big claim to fame and also where they first worked together. And then after Zynga's IPO, Curtis was uh, leading product for a while. Groupon before eventually uh, launching a startup uh, for those in the Bay Area you might recall back in 2014, in the middle of the on-demand boom, there was a company called Lux that did on-demand parking. And Curtis was the founder and CEO, and that's where him and I linked up. I was on the BD and growth side of things, and eventually a GM. And that was a wild ride. For anyone who has ever been in on-demand logistics, you can empathize with the pain of just nonstop operation day in, day out. But we eventually... Sold the business to Volvo, the auto manufacturer, in fall of 17. And that's actually where, funnily enough, the impetus for Pinwheel starts, where for the first time in our lives, Curtis and I had received HSAs, health savings accounts, for the first time. And we realized that there was a pretty fundamental problem with them, which is for the majority of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck, in order to actually use these things, you have to pre-fund. And they don't have the cash flow to actually pre-fund, and thus they can't use these accounts. And it's often to the tune of a thousand or two thousand dollars or more of 
basically just free money being left on the table. And so we thought that we could actually address this problem by really reversing and inverting the way that those accounts work. And so we realized that you could connect your spending accounts with like a bank aggregator like Plaid, for example. And whenever you make a qualified medical expense, we built an algorithm to detect it and then go into your payroll system and automatically add the tax savings to your paycheck. So like an automated HSA, if you will. We raised a seed round, went out to market and had the best problem that any startup could have, which is that we were unable to keep up with demand. Like people just kept on coming in being like, this is really cool. We really want to use this. And so we found ourselves with this really interesting predicament, which is that our engineering hours, literally all of them were not actually spent building product, but actually spent building integrations into payroll systems because people would come in and be like, hey, we use ADP or we use Workday, we use Gusto, we use whatever. Do you support these systems? And of course, as a fledgling startup, we were like, no, we don't support any of these things. And so we would sprint to support them. And at a certain point, we were looking around and saying, wait a second, there's got to be an API or some sort of infrastructure product out there that allows us to connect to all these payroll and more broadly income sources in one fell swoop. And we just searched high and low, couldn't find anything. And so we built this platform internally for ourselves just to power our own app. And we had a light bulb moment when we started talking to all these other fintechs and quickly realized that there weren't just tens or hundreds. There were thousands of others, not only startups, but just companies out there, especially in the fintech and more broadly, the financial services world that needed programmatic access into the data that sits in these payroll systems, right? Things like who you are, how much you make, where you work. There are such integral pieces of information that drive our financial lives and the decisions that lenders and banks and service providers make about whether or not you give someone a loan or uh, whether or not you can offer them some type of financial service or product. And that's when we realized, oh, like we can actually fulfill the same kind of core ethos and mission that we have to build a, a fairer and better financial system by moving away from the app and actually really focusing on the infrastructure to help people like ourselves and all the innovators out there build the future of the of the financial system. So that's how we ended up where we are today. That's always fascinating when I think as founders, you kind of move up that value chain where there seems to be a bigger need and you almost become the supplier as opposed to the original customer. Thanks for sharing that. And so how did you exactly go about discovering that product market fit there? Clearly there was a demand, but how did you manage to find that spot? Yeah, that's an uh, interesting question. So there's, looking back on it, there were two really major inflection points. One was as we started to flush out this idea and really were deciding whether or not we wanted to pivot into this, we, in the span of three months, had literally, I think like 220 calls with everyone from like big banks, community credit unions, fintechs, both large and small lenders of all shapes and sizes, just to really understand what the market need was. And we had kind of whittled it down to basically three key use cases that we would be addressing with our platform. One is around the ability to verify someone's income and employment, which is just table stakes and you have to do legally, right? If you want to offer anyone a financial 
Two is a lot of people don't realize it, but in these payroll systems and more probably than income sources, you have the ability to update someone's direct deposit. And you know, I'm sure everyone on this call knows how important those direct deposits are for folks in the retail banking world and just more broadly, anyone who is servicing uh, consumers in the financial system. And we realize that one of the key things that everyone is trying to do is to make it really easy to switch a direct deposit, right? Especially if you're a neobank, if you're like a Chime or a Cash App, being able to seamlessly move that direct deposit over, especially during onboarding is such a huge win. But the process of switching direct deposits is really hard, right? You're either submitting a paper form to your HR team, which if anyone's ever tried, it is brutal. Or if you're, you have to self-serve on like an ADP or Workday portal, which it's not the end of the world, but it's actually a lot more friction because they don't really design for a seamless employee UX. They focus on the employer experience, which is uh, kind of a misaligned incentive. And so we realized you could take all of that friction out and condense it down to a single click and then embed it at the point of highest intent, right? Like during someone's um, onboarding, for example. And we, it was that. And then the last one was, uh, a similar concept in that you could use a portion of the paycheck as a way to repay uh, a loan. And especially for thin file consumers who don't have any real credit history, they can immediately unlock a lower interest rate by opting into a process where they have the lender collect payment directly out of that paycheck via the direct deposit, right? So the lender gets what we would call, quote unquote, first money out or first lien. And then they would be able to unlock a rate that was exponentially low, even without having to have a FICO score. And so those are kind of the three paths that we were looking at. And in those conversations, we were sussing out the validity of each one of these. And the thing that really tipped us off was in these conversations back when, you know, people were actually in an office and in person, which feels like eons ago, you could actually see the way that people's body language would respond to how you were pitching these things. And we actually AB tested the order. Like we would start with one use case with one pitch. And then in the next pitch, we would start with another use case to really figure out like if there was a point where people were actually leaning in. And it became really clear after first 15, 20 conversations and certainly into the, into the hundreds. When we were talking about the direct deposit piece, everyone's like eyes would light up. They would lean in. They'd be like, wait a second. Like, you know, this is like, have you tested this? How, how effective is this? Have you tried it with anyone of scale? And it was just so clear that there was such a short-term urgency around it. And that really gave us the conviction to know that that was the right path for us. And so that was the first major inflection point that got us really excited. And the second one was actually largely unintentional. When we came out of stealth, this was June of 2020. We frankly had no PR strategy, right? Like we're a cash strap startup. And so we begged our friends at TechCrunch, we're like, please, please, for the love of God, just like write an article on us so we can get some press. And they eventually acquiesced. And when the article came out, we're like, look, if we can just get 10 or 15 leads, that'll be a really, really uh, great outcome. And in the first 72 hours, we got 133 organic inbounds from all the big banks like City, Wells Fargo, BOA, Chase all the major fintechs like Square, PayPal, SoFi, Credit Karma, et cetera. And it became this really interesting thing where we're like, wow, there's, there's a lot more here than we realized. And it wasn't just those three use cases. It was actually, hey, look at the roadmap for a lot of these players. For the next five to 10 years, there are all of these really problems they want to solve 
that in order to solve them, they need something within our platform to actually unlock, whether it's using our time and attendance data to build a fairly new version and better version of earn wage access, or you know, being able to have real-time underwriting because we have ongoing connectivity into someone's income and payroll so we can see if they've been furloughed or had a reduction in hours worked or god forbid been terminated or on the other side like under promotion and actually have more cash flow there's all these things that we can do um, that we kind of had dreamt about but didn't really think the market was ready for and it made us realize that you know there was so much more to this and it uh, really helped us solidify our long-term roadmap in a very short amount of time so and those are kind of the two major inflection points for us so Kurt, you mentioned a few use cases. One is direct deposit switching, another was payroll verification, and uh, subsequently others. I'm wondering which one did you guys launch with, or did you launch with all three, and all three were successful? <laughs> we luckily having two other founders who were, you know, seasoned uh, operators did not lose focus and try to do all three. So we focused on the direct deposit piece first. It was just where we felt the strongest pull. And once we started really pushing deep there, we kept on feeling more and more market pull. So I think it ended up being the, the right choice for us, which was uh, great to see because these are all the end of the day conviction bets, right? And I think you look back at the history of the company and there's always these moments where, you know, you, you think you're making the right decision, but you really don't know. And there, there's certainly uh, a rolling of the dice and it ended up being one of the, I think, if not the, the most important and right call that we've made in the company's history. So that was the, the first wedge product. And then once we got the initial set of customers there, the product was really rolling. We ended up expanding to the verification product and then eventually what we call paycheck link blending. Got it. So in regards to the payment or the pay, uh, verification of your income, that product, are you a direct competitor to the work number, which is owned by Equifax? The reason why I'm laughing is because I get this question at least once a day. So at this point, well, I'll I... tell you my views of Equifax before you answer. I don't like the service at all. So any improvement there, I am celebrate. I'm in a celebratory mode. You, you are not alone. And as I'm sure most of your audience knows as well, I think they feel like they've established a, at least a pseudo monopoly. And so they've been really ratcheting up rates, uh, especially for lending customers in the past year or so. So the, the pain is real. I would say at a high level, we don't see ourselves as being directly competitive, even though we solve a similar problem, because the way that we solve it and the way that we think about the problem, I think is very, what Equifax has is effectively a static database model, right? They're, at least historically, they've been uploading FTP like flat files and just maintaining this database. And even though they have now established, you know, some API connections, it's still largely a database model. And the problem with that is a lot of the, the data is either stale or it only allows you to really do one thing, which is verify information. Like, and specifically like the income and employment data in the report that they've created. What it doesn't allow you to do is take this to the next level, which is to say, if you can connect an account and have real-time visibility into someone's existing income and employment standing, it allows you to do something like a lot of really creative things, right? Whether it is um, earned wage access and being able to forward someone their paycheck every day as soon as they clock out, or being able to, again, do dynamic underwriting, right? Where you approve someone 
initially. And then as time goes on, as you get more and more inputs, you can adjust accordingly, right? There's all these really exciting things that you can do when you have a platform that is driven not by a static database model, but on a dynamic connectivity basis, which is what we provide. And so it's in that regard that we don't really see ourselves as being competitive because they, the honest truth is they've spent a lot of time building a business and the data itself isn't the moat, right? Like it's it's on a long enough timeline is at risk of, of being commoditized. And so the important thing is actually building things that are providing unique value. And for us, it starts with the connectivity and being able to have that real-time access to just monitor for all different types of things. And then two is we're also doing a lot of the work to take the information in and normalize it and structure it in a way that is actually usable beyond just saying, yeah, this is how much Kurt makes, right? You can actually take inputs from, hey, this is an Uber driver or DoorDasher. Here's some translation and imputed value work that sits on top of that information to give you a predictive index on this is what their projected income should be. Or, hey, here's how to understand someone who makes the majority of their income on Etsy. Here's how to translate that into uh, an income report that you can then actually, as a lender, use confidently, right, to to make assessments. And so it's in that regard that we really don't see ourselves as being competitive. So in order, like you mentioned four things. One is the use case around direct deposit lending, uh, or rather paycheck linked lending, earned wage access, uh, direct deposit, and then pay your income verification. Regarding the first one that I mentioned, which is paycheck linked lending, in order, so I have some background in underwriting for personal loans and, you know, our personal loan underwriting models generally tend on, they tend to rely on two dimensions. One is willingness to pay and the other is ability to pay. And the willingness to pay that's largely dealt with the credit scoring model and the premier attributes, right? And then the ability to pay for that, you look at income streams of that given individual. So if that's what you're doing, A, which is verifying the income, and then if you're also enabling paycheck linked lending, how does that work? Because like the income, the data that you're providing needs to be verified. So can you walk us through what does it take from a regulatory perspective to provide that data for underwriting purposes? Yeah, that's a great question. I should start off by saying something that a lot of people don't know, which is that we are actually a CRA. So we are a regulated consumer reporting agency. And the important piece of that is that if you uh, look at any other data aggregator outside of uh, Finicity, nobody else has actually made the choice to do so. And what that basically means is that they don't stand behind the integrity of their data. Because if there leads to any sort of adverse action from the inaccuracy of that information, they're not liable. Their whole argument is that, oh, we're just a pass-through, right? Whereas we see this clearly as the way that the industry is going. And if you really sit there and you say that you're standing for consumer data rights and that you believe that the unlocking of this data and putting it into the hands of consumers allows them to access better, cheaper, fair financial products, then why would you not lean into the regulation and say, yes, like this information is accurate. We stand behind it. And if something's wrong, the consumer has recourse to come back and say, this is wrong. And we, we are on the hook for making sure that information is accurate. So I just want to call that piece out, number one. So I just Can I? Yeah, I was going to say, that's great. Like you're owning the data quality, which is key. So that's why I think you became a CRA. Why? So we generally, we get a lot of fintechs, right, on this show. And generally, none of them are CRA, a credit reporting agency. I think there was only one other, which is Nova Credit. So 
I want to ask you, why did you make the decision to go down the route of becoming a credit reporting agency? Yeah, first of all, Misha and Nova is great. So shout out to, to, to Misha. The decision for us was actually pretty obvious once we thought about it. So if you think about it from an upside downside perspective, the downside is really just, and not to, you know, it, to give it the credit it deserves, setting up as a CRA is not easy. There's a major operational overhead and our team did such an amazing job getting it spun up in a way that was frankly much more rapid and effective than I think a lot of people have done before. And the reason we were able to do that is because we did it when we were not very large. I think a lot of people realize after they've hit a certain scale that there's a lot of benefits to this and then they find it really hard to then add in the operational overhead on top because it's it, you have to really like fundamentally structure restructure I would say the the way that your business actually operates right because there's the regulatory constraints there's having to set up different entities to field consumer uh, reports etc or complaints rather and so for us what it really came down to was okay there's an operational overhead but the upside is the data that we provide can actually be used for underwriting purposes, right? If you are not a CRA, legally speaking, especially uh, to be compliant with FICRA, the data that you provide can only be used for the purposes of verifying income and employment, but it can't actually be used for purposes of underwriting and credit decisioning, which kind of feels like like that's that's the ultimate goal of the data, right? Like if it's only to be used for these like little bits of ver- verifying information, then, you know, what do you like? That's, that's such a limit, such a limitation to what the real upside of the data can be. And so once we realized that it was a pretty, it was a kind of a no brainer for us to do so. And I think um, we feel really good about the decision now, especially as we see the way that the CFPB has been moving, the way that regulators have been moving. I mean, consumer data rights is one of those things that you know in today's day and age rarely is there anything that has bipartisan support and this is one of them that clearly no one is going to sit there and argue that consumers shouldn't have access to their information and that that information shouldn't be accurate and that the people who provide it should stand behind the quality of it makes sense i know so i have a set of questions here around use cases but i know manisha wants to come in too so last question that i'll ask around use case which is the which is the product that you launched with, and that's direct deposit switching. So I understand Pinwheel is a B two B product. If I am a you know retail customer, let's say I open a open an account with the Cash app, and I want to switch my direct deposit over to cash from my current bank account, what is the? Can you walk us through the customer journey? What what does that experience look like? How does one do what you're trying to do for them? Yeah, happy to. So. Let's say you are a uh, new Cash App customer. You download the app, uh, you create an account. And once you do, you know, if you really want to get value out of this, you sign up for a bank account, right? At that point, they prompt you to say, hey, you created an account. Congratulations. If you connect your direct deposit, you can unlock all these interesting, really value additive features like, you know, um, two day early wage advance or some other thing. And at that point, the consumer will see a experience that is co-built alongside our partners. And it allows them to say, hey, you know, this is either my payroll provider or this is where I work. And then we make it really simple to say, okay, like, yes, I want to connect. Let's just say you use Workday. I want to connect my Workday account to Cash App. 
And once I do so, I want to either move all or some of my paycheck over. And once they make that selection on the back end, we take care of everything else. And so the experience closes, they go back into the app and it's really just a few clicks. And on the back end, we make sure that the settings that they want updated are updated accordingly uh, in their workday account. Got it. Great. Thank you. Manisha, over to you for your segment. Oh, thank you. And actually a quick follow-up on that. In terms of that direct deposit process, Kurt, do you actually have them logging in to their respective payroll processor or is there an API? How does that work? I'm sorry if I missed that. Yeah, it's a, it's the connections are all uh, API driven. And so the the way that people can authorize that, there's a couple of different methods. I think we really focus on making sure the process is as easy as possible uh, for the consumer. So sometimes it's login password. Other times it's just give us your first name, last name and the last four of your social. And then we'll match it on file and send the number on file a two-factor off code. And that's another way to verify. So it really just depends on, we, we really make it a point to make it as frictionless as possible for the consumer to actually do what they want to do. Great. Thank you. And then just shifting over, I know we typically tend to end the structure part in a few minutes. So just a quick couple of questions around your customers. What problems, I mean, I think we've kind of got the gist of it, but what are the specific problems you're solving for? And also there seems to be a bit of a ease of financial access play within your whole ecosystem of solutions. So if you could speak to the customers, the problems you're solving and the vision through that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the direct deposit piece. As mentioned, largely everyone in the consumer finance world, whether you are an actual retail bank or a you know newer consumer fintech, we've seen that a lot of folks are really trying to ensure that they have the right monetization model for the long term. And so what that looks like, let's have a consumer bring their paycheck here. Once they have their deposits coming in on a regular basis, we are number one, making interchange revenue on everything they spend. So we're building a really strong foundation of revenue for the business. And then it also creates that kind of stickiness and, and lock-in with that consumer for a higher LTV, right? And just to throw a stat out there, one of the largest neobanks, the difference between a direct deposit versus non-direct deposit customer is a 32x in LTV. So it just goes to show you how important those direct deposits are. Now, problem is really high friction, right? As we discussed, it's either manual forms or you're self-serving on the portal yourself. And so we take all that friction out and make it really easy for that consumer to switch a direct deposit with just a few clicks. So that's kind of the problem and solution statement for that product. Now, as you kind of pull that forward, we really started to see that the roadmaps for a lot of folks in the consumer finance space, I think one of the, I wouldn't say it's a secret anymore. A lot of people's roadmaps kind of look the same because there's really only so many ways to, to make money and also innovate effectively in the consumer landscape because there's just a lot of regulation, right? And so I think everyone is trying to take that next step into how do we provide the most innovative and exceptionally value additive lending products to consumers in the market, right? And so I think there's been a couple different tacks that people are taking here. I think one that is just really gaining a lot of steam amongst especially the biggest folks in this space is around the idea of earned wage access. But there are also people who are looking at, hey, how can we reimagine the credit card and think about 
revolving credit in a, in a different way. But if you really um, think about what it takes to do any sort of credit product and especially earn wage access, since that's kind of the thing that is uh, most top of mind for most people, you need really three key things. Number one is the data to know as of the, this very moment, like as soon as Kurt has clocked out of his, like clocked in and clocked out of his shift, you have the verified data from the source to know that yes, Kurt did work that shift or yes, Kurt did do this many Uber drives today, right? That's number one. Number two is you also need in real time to know that Kurt is still actively employed, right? If, if he isn't, then there's a, there's a chance that he may not actually receive the paycheck that you need on the back end to make sure that you get paid back for whatever you're advancing, right? And then the third piece is, okay, when Kurt does actually get paid, whether it's two weeks or a month down the line, do we also have assurance that, or a guarantee effectively that I will be able to claw back the funds that I forwarded for the paycheck when I do? And you put those three things together and now you have effectively earn wage access as a feature, right? And so whether it's deploying it with some of the you know largest fintechs and FIs in the space, or whether it is uh, with a fintech that's just spinning up tomorrow, we allow anyone uh, in the space to be able to offer that as a feature to help consumers really help bridge the gap in between paychecks, right? So if you can do earn wage access as a feature, then it's really not that much harder to do revolving credit as a feature or paycheck link lending as a feature. And eventually in some future world, you know, something even to the extent of, you know, a buy now, pay later as a feature, right? And the vision here is really that in the same way that I think a lot of people plaid as being the progenitor of this first wave of fintech, what we internally call fintech 1.0, we really see ourselves as the catalyst and the platform that is driving the second wave of fintech, what we call fintech 2.0, right? And a lot of the products that are being currently built or will be built are riding rails and sitting on our platform and are using the data and the controls that we have to the paycheck to actually build those products. That's uh, super helpful. And I, I think the uh, Series B round that you raised in January is sort of a reinforcement of some of that FinTech 2.0 that you're powering. So congratulations on that. And then just another final question around your acquisition strategies. How do you find your customers? I mean, um, it, clearly it sounds like it's a B2B where your financial institutions are uh, direct consumers of the direct deposit offering or use case, but how do you find, go about finding some of those customers for that or other use cases? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think the thing to start with is when we think about our go-to-market strategy, it's almost counterintuitive in a sense where as a startup, the conventional wisdom is to always start small and grow your way into the biggest customers, right? Especially as an API platform, historically, there's a lot of examples where people who kind of went bottoms up, especially product-led growth, had you know massively successful outcomes, right? Like Stripe probably being the most relevant example here. We also looked at a lot of the most successful generational API companies and realized something really interesting, which is a lot of them actually have a couple big anchor customers that drove the majority of the revenue, and then they actually grew alongside them. Right. So if you look at Twilio, they grew alongside Uber and Lyft with the two factor opt use case. That was really what drove the majority of their revenue growth in their early and really into their mid and late stage as well. 
if you take a look at, at Plaid, is a similar um, situation where Venmo and Robinhood and Coinbase and a lot of those folks ended up being the primary drivers of their revenue growth as well. And so they grew alongside them. And so for us, uh, we're like, okay, for this to work, we need two things. We need one to have a partner that we can really grow alongside. And so if you think about what that means, you want to target the customers that have the highest either growth potential or existing growth velocity. And so we took a look at the market and we said, okay, it's very clear that in consumer fintech, you know, there's players like Cash App who are growing wildly quickly. And it's because they have a great product, a great business, and they continue to be the innovators uh, in the market in many regards. And so we said, okay, well, one of those is actually worth a hundred startups that have, if not a thousand startups, because if you add up all of the customers that they serve, they won't even, you know, get close to the volume that they have. And so we actually very counterintuitively went top down at the beginning, which, you know, at the time was incredibly painful, especially the small startup, because, you know, you're fighting for every win there and you're really hoping to get that traffic on the platform to really get the flywheel spinning. But I think we really had conviction in our strategy. And once we got to the point when we actually did go live and really started to scale the platform, it ended up being totally the right one. And so I think that kind of set the tone. And so now from an acquisition perspective, it is largely, frankly, most of the traffic is actually inbound, but we have an incredible sales team that is also out there doing you know, direct sales. And we're now really investing in our partnership channels to really get that next level of distribution with instead of it being one-to-one, getting a one-to-many growth strategy in place. That's fantastic. Glad to hear the pinwheels uh, spinning. At this point, I think we're just going to open up, Amika, for the floor for questions. Actually, just one last thing, if I can. Kurt, so one thing about the paycheck-linked lending, I wanted to confirm, is the principal the percentage of the next paycheck? Like, Can you talk a little bit about mechanics of how are you enabling paycheck-linked lending? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty complex topic with a lot of different nuances. Let me start off by explaining the concept in its most basic form, and then we can build off of that. So the idea in short is, especially as a consumer who doesn't have a credit history, the best options that they have are most likely some type of predatory product, right? Either a payday lender or something akin to that, which is obviously not good and only puts them further into a cycle of debt. What we have seen is, and by the way, this is a fairly common practice in LATAM, in parts of Asia, in parts of Europe as well. And so it's not a a new concept per se. It just hasn't been able to really thrive in the American market because the infrastructure hasn't existed to do so, at least up until now. And so the idea is, okay, in lieu of having the information around your, as you mentioned, Amika, the like willingness uh, to pay, we really need to focus on optimizing for the ability to pay. And as a lender, the whole game is to really reduce risk, right? So the idea is if the consumer, again, this is all voluntary, if they opt to connect their paycheck and have the lender collect payment for the loan from their direct deposit, either as a percentage or as a flat amount, it's usually a flat amount because it's like, okay, collect $50 out of each paycheck for the next 12 to pay off whatever you know item you purchased. It gives the lender a much more de-risked way to service what would otherwise be a a very, quote-unquote, risky lender, like someone below a FICO or 550, for example. And we've actually been able to show with our early lending customers that we 
just by connecting to the paycheck. And especially for people who are, you know, deeply subprime, a 3x increase in repayment rates. And because of that, the lender feels much more comfortable extending a interest rate that is non-predatory, right? That is actually to the benefit of the consumer. And so there's this rare win-win that happens when you can do that. So that's, that's kind of the, the core ethos and concept of paycheck link lending. And you can actually, there's different variations of it, right? You can also do what would be like a direct deposit, a revolving credit line. So if someone connects their payroll account with Pinwheel, you can see what their direct deposits are going to be each, each um, cycle. And you can say, hey, as long as this account is connected and we have ongoing visibility, we can extend X percent of your paycheck as a revolving credit line for this consumer. And so there's like different ways to, to go about it, but it all stems from having that connectivity to the payroll account. Awesome. Okay. I'll hold the rest of my questions. Hopefully the audience member will ask them. If we're almost at 5.40, so we should open the floor now to the audience. If you, I think, Peter, you try to come up. So if you like to come up, please join us on stage. There is a hand icon on the bottom right. If you click that, Munisha and I, we can bring you up on stage. But reminder that we are recording the show. So we request that you state your name and say where you're dialing in from before you ask your question. If you are in a place where you cannot come, it's, it's loud, then you can send us a message through the back channel or the chat function on the left, which is available as well. So Peter, I think you were, here we go, Deidre, let's see. Hey, sorry, yep. I was having audio difficulties earlier. So Curtis, I was listening to you talk specifically about the, the, the paycheck linked lending. And I was thinking all the buy now, pay laters that are just totally catching on fire now. And I see a lot of opportunity there, but I also see a lot of risk there. You mentioned pay buy now, pay later may come in the future. Do you think with it being so popular that that may come sooner? That's a really uh, acute uh, observation. Thank you for asking the question. We actually do work with uh, a number of buy now, pay later customers. And I think the thing that you're getting at, and if I, if I am making a faulty assumption here, please, please correct mm-hmm. me is that there's a risk of folks effectively over levering themselves, right? Like, oh, I'm going to yes. give X percent of my paycheck here, and then it quickly goes out of control. And so it's a great point, and it's something that we are ourselves very cognizant of. Mm-hmm. What we have actively worked on is thinking about, okay, like there is an easy wages, which is just to say, you know, you can't do this for more than call it like 20% or whatever percentage of the paycheck mm-hmm. to make sure that mm-hmm. they're not, you know, over levering themselves and that's kind of been the the kind of easy solution for the time being mm-hmm. eventually what we want to do is be able to build the and it's so cliche to say but like a, a machine learning driven <laughs> model to be able to dynamically adjust that right and say well actually mm-hmm. we have enough history of data here to actually be comfortable moving up to 30 percent or what have you and so it's something that you know we're very cognizant of and you know, no system is perfect. So uh, we're certainly trying to do everything we can to make sure that we are, to the extent that we can, putting in the protective guardrails to make sure that consumers are not accidentally putting themselves into, you know, a, a financial position that is, ends up being even harder for them in the long run. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Bryce, I think you're having some trouble with noise around uh, i I, i'm in a quiet place so i can now (laughs) snuck away from bath time for a minute here you know i I tweeted this out 
kind of this morning, but just kind of something I've been thinking through just mulling over is, you know, there, there's a difference between data literacy and, and uh, data proficiency, right, for an individual, right? Love to hear a take on, like, you know, for a, a FinTech founder, kind of what level of data proficiency, you know, do they need to have to be in that role? And then especially I would love to hear on like non-engineering roles like marketing and sales, you know, how much data proficiency should they have? That makes sense. That's a really interesting question. Uh, I appreciate you asking, Bryce. I think the, the thing that we really value is analytical rigor across the board. And in fact, we really focus on always making data-driven decisions. And a lot of people, you know, want to be that type of org, but I think we really uh, put a heavy focus on it. So much so that we actually, this is like, pre-seed or right around seed and we were still a very small team with actually like no live customer besides like a one or two we did a like a two-month sprint to get looker fully implemented into the platform early on because for us it was like data 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 right like look at the conversion rates look at the quality of the data information making all of our decisions based off of having the data being the ultimate arbiter of truth versus people's opinions or, or hypotheses about things and I think that level of rigor early on has really started to pay off where, you know, whether you are, and especially if you're a non-technical person, aka a non-engineer on the team, you know, I look at our customer success teams, our implementation teams, our sales teams, our marketing teams, we're always looking at the funnel metrics or the whatever dashboards that we have created on Looker or other platforms to actually drive all the decision making. And one of the things that we actually really try to do is no matter what role you're in, we put people through a, a Looker training to make sure that they can actually create their own dashboards, that they can, you know, short of actually learning SQL, they can do all the queries that they actually uh, want to do without having to bother our, our data team, right? Like we want our data team focused on actually building net new data infrastructure, not servicing requests from the org about like, hey, you know, what's our conversion rate for this customer or whatever, right? And so I think that's actually, zooming out a second, I think it's actually one of the traits that is universal to the most successful uh, teams and companies. We're very lucky to count Tony Shu at DoorDash as one of our angel investors. And I remember an early conversation I had with him, he mentioned that in the early days of the company, he actually mandated that every single person in the company, regardless of what role you are, actually learn SQL because like, like he wanted everyone to be rigorous in their analysis of the information that they had. And you could not bring forth a proposal for anything if it didn't have, you know, the data behind it to support whatever position you were trying to, to, to push. So we tried to take a page out of that uh, philosophy and really drive that forward. Great. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks, Bryce, for joining us. And Sumit, welcome back. If you want to tell us where you're dialing in from, and then you can share your thoughts or ask your question. We did mute you, so you'll have to unmute yourself. Hi, everyone. Hey. Ah, perfect. That worked. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm joining from Toronto, Canada, and it's such a pleasure to be here. I've been a big fan of Pinwheel. I heard about you in 2020, and I was consulting with a payday lender, actually. I was using decision logic when I came across you guys. And over time, I saw like different use cases developing over there. And I was working very closely with customers. And so my 
one of my questions to you would be is have you ever considered the use case of connecting payroll accounts to investment accounts so for a lot of companies where people are being encouraged to save and they want their employees to save would there be an opportunity for pinwheel to provide that use case where you could automatically shift some amount to pay back a loan, some amount to invest, so you build wealth for consumers over time, or would that need separate regulation? That is a fantastic question, Samin. I'm really happy you brought that up because it is actually largely in line with this thesis that we are certainly not the ones who pioneered, but is certainly uh, a thing that I think has been in FinTech for a long time, which is this idea of self-driving money, right? And one of the things that we realized is if you take a step back for a second and think about a consumer's flow of funds and you map it out, the payroll system is the most top of stack that you can be, right? It's, it's even more upstream than your own bank account. And it's what actually drives the money into your bank account. And so if you can build the pipes from the source, you can do things like exactly like you said, dynamically adjust and allocate the paycheck to optimize for yield and for savings and for wealth generation for consumers, right? And so, you know, we, we are actually actively exploring, if not actually live with a couple of customers who are actually focusing on the wealth generation, the savings piece versus, you know, things for like credit or lending purposes. So I'm really, I'm glad you brought that up. It, it's a really exciting thing to be able to manifest in reality where we're not totally there yet, but we're starting to see the beginnings of it, where imagine a world where every paycheck is just dynamically adjusted. X percent goes to your brokerage account, Y percent goes to savings, Z percent goes to your checking. Or, you know, we also have a really interesting use case where, you know, the, the, the topic du jour these days is crypto, right? And so our customers who are either in that space or moving into that space, every consumer wants the ability to say, hey, I want, you know, at least some if not all of my paycheck being converted into uh, crypto upon it being paid out. And so we can actually be in many ways that fiat on-ramp uh, for consumers by saying, okay, well, we can take X percent of that direct deposit and immediately convert it into crypto and put it into your wallet. And so it's a, I'm really glad you brought that up. Thank you so much. That's exactly what I'm looking and exploring and taking this uh, to India to some Indian companies. So I'll reach out to you. But that's exactly what I was looking at as well and how to take that. And because you guys know the financial profile of someone, you can see how much risk they can take on. So you can suggest, hey, if you want to dabble in crypto, this is a good spot to stop for you. So thank you for that. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Sumit. And Jeff, welcome back. If you want to tell us where you're dialing in from and then share your thoughts. Hi. I muted you. There we go. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. Doing? Jeff Ruckley. I work at SoFi. I'm an accountant, uh, auditor by trade. I'm just wondering, as a non as a non financial background founder, how were you able to learn like all the different things you need to do in order to start a business, and you know, navigate through all the like, regulations. <laughs> That is actually, I would say, something to celebrate about your profile, Kurt. Like, we've been in the financial industry for a while, and even like even now, I don't know if I know every single possible regulation to launch a company, and yet you've done it. So, yeah, I back that question of Jeff's. Yeah. First of all, uh, very insightful question, Jeff. The, the honest answer is I feel like there's so many resources out there now 
that if you really just spend the time to get smart about it, the barrier to entry is not what it used to be. I feel like uh, call it five years ago or prior to that point, it would have been a lot harder. But I think there's just so many people now who are actively generating content to help give people like a primer on this is how payments work. This is how like core banking works. This is how, you know, money movement works. And there's some like really dense, I'm, I'm sure everyone here knows, like there's some, <laughs> some incredibly dense volumes of, of text out there, but there's also a lot of like guides that give you at least uh, a foundation to work off of. And then I would really say, honestly, for anyone, especially, you know, fellow entrepreneurs who are looking to not just get into fintech, but frankly, any space that requires some level of domain expertise and knowledge. The fastest way to learn is just by talking people in the space. And for us, that was customers, right? Like everyone who we would talk to, a lot of them spent the past two or three decades of their careers in the space. And so they, they love sitting there and like, let me tell you about how things used to be and how much better it is now or how, how bad this is now and how, how, how badly I wish that this was fixed. And it really, I feel like my learning curve accelerated so quickly after I started talking to customers and within just like the first few months, I was learning the language. I was understanding the, the, the you know, foundational incentives of the market. And that was what closed the gap for me more than anything else. Awesome. Thank you. I guess that's what we're doing with this FinTech Cafe hobby, <laughs> learning all about the exactly. domain. Okay. So we have one question from the back channel that I have. It's from Anand and he and I also worked at SoFi together. So a lot of SoFi folks in the house today. And his question is, is Pinwheel thinking about providing a personal ID backed by a Pinwheel that consumers can provide for credit decisioning? Ah, I love this feature vision question. The short answer is yes. I think the, the more complex answer is it's a matter of when and, and how. But we really see ourselves as building what we call the income layer of the financial system, right? All the information about how you earn money whether it's through a payroll provider or a gig platform or a future of work platform or whatever else. And, and by the way, uh, one thing I should mention is this is changing so quickly, right? Like the way that, especially pre-COVID versus post-COVID, the way that people earn money is changing rapidly and drastically. And we really see it as our job to, no matter what type of data comes in in whatever format, like take someone's Fiverr account and understand how that translates into the foundational unit of income that we can then use to, to, to give to the lender. And so doing all of that work is really foundational, or rather, I should say, really dependent on that consumer giving us the permission to do so. And as a part of that, it really builds trust with the consumer that as a CRA, especially like we are here to empower them to use our data for, to help themselves. And so the natural evolution of that concept is on a long enough timeline, as we continue to build trust with that consumer, is to make it easier and easier and easier for them to share that information with who they want to. And on the other side of the token, stop sharing information with people who they no longer want to see that information. And so building the granular controls over what who can see my information as a consumer is one of the key and core tenants of our product vision as we move forward. And it's something that is just frankly tied to the ethos of why we built Pinwheel in the first place, right? This is ultimately all about ensuring that we give consumers the ability to use their data to their own benefit.
Great, thank you. And then another question is from James. He's a software engineer, and he's asking me on this on the context of like exchanging data. I think he's uh, it's from more, more from a data privacy perspective. How do I, as a consumer, know who am I sharing the data with? Is the UI clear on whom I'm sharing my data with? Yes, extremely clear. I, I wish this was. I mean. Let's not get ourselves. I think we're all sick of Zoom calls, but I wish it was a Zoom call so I could actually share my screen and do a demo. <laughs> this, is, this is not a sales pitch, so I won't do it. But yes, in the in the end user or consumer UX, it's very clear. It says like, "Hey, like FYI, you are we're asking you if you want to share this information with this specific partner." So in the case in the case of Cash App, like with Cash App. Um, and Pinwheel is enabling this, like, are you like, yes, do you want to do this or no, do you not want to do this? And just to the security point, we, all the data that we have is 256-bit encrypted, both at rest and in transit. And we, you know, take security very seriously because especially in this type of business, you only get one chance, right? If you ever have a situation where the consumer's data is in some way compromised, I mean, it's just so hard for you to to be able to be that provider for them in the future. And so something that we take very seriously. Right. Margin of error is really low. It Question? is in all financial services, right? Certainly. Yes. Especially when you're a fintech, however, though. Last question that I have in the back channel is from Jonathan. He's not from the fintech industry. So he's saying if I, I think he's, he works for a company that perhaps has like suite of apartment buildings. And he's saying, could I use your solution to confirm income? as people apply for, let's say, apartments. Is this a solution available outside of fintech as well? Yes. And in fact, we actually work with a tenant verification platform specifically to do the income and employment verification. So I would, Jonathan, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> okay. And then the last question, this one's from me. I have a, my own bank account with the, you know, one of the big financial institutions. And I'm wondering, how do I get them to use your services? I, as an individual consumer, given that you're a B2B platform, mostly. Well, I cannot directly, I'm trying to, I've signed NDAs, so I can't <laughs> drop names here. But I, what I can say is we are in very active conversations and very mature conversations with certainly the big four and most of the you know largest traditional FIs. So I think what I can say is, you should be looking forward to seeing Pinwheel in, I don't know which bank you use, and I, I can also not confirm publicly, but for those folks who bank with some of the big four banks, I, I would, I, I would, I'm excited to show that in due time, you will be seeing Pinwheel somewhere within the flow. Awesome. Well, that's it. Well, those are all the questions that we had today, and we're also almost out of time. So any parting words from, from you, Kurt, regarding Pinwheel, what we should expect coming up? First of all, this was a blast. So thank you so much for inviting me. It's 9 p.m. here, and I'm now so excited from this conversation that it's going to be really hard for me to, <laughs> to wind down. I would say, above all else, number one is, you know, we're just so excited about what we're building. And so if anyone on this call is looking to take on a new challenge, we would love to have a conversation about, you know, joining the team. We're hiring across every, literally every function. So please, please reach out. And then two is we're always constantly surprised by the, A, the scale of existing use cases and products and 
the innovation of net new ones that we see come in every day. So we'd love to talk to anyone, whether it is one of our existing products or something that you are excited to try to build uh, in the future. I get as much energy from these conversations as I do from anything else. So please reach out. Great. Thank you. So it sounds like we're right on the hour. Thanks again, Kurt, for joining us. Uh, great conversation and excited for what's coming up for Pinwheel and also what is already out there. And for those who joined us today, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully you had as much fun as we did in this conversation with Kurt and about Pinwheel. We will be back next week. Ambika, any fine, fun Yeah, words? no, thank you, Kurt, for your time. Also, I just want to let everybody know, like we don't usually share questions with the, with the panelists. So the fact that Kurt, you were able to handle all our questions, we really appreciate it. Thank you. They were all great <laughs> questions. So uh, credit goes to your, to your audience for that. Thank you. Well, with that, that's it for tonight. We'll be back next week. I think we have Falcon X coming up next, their founder. So we'll talk about crypto next week. So thank you. And until then, stay safe. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thanks again, Kurt. Bye. Bye. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.